0: Locusts typically are solitary, flightless insects. They do not fly, they live by themselves, they don't swarm, they just look like little green grasshoppers and and really there's really not much difference between a locust and a grasshopper. But here's what happens. During times of famine, when there is not enough grass, they obviously will concentrate in more of the same places. Now when locusts, are close together and their legs and their carapaces rub up against each other, it releases serotonin, which accelerates the reproductive process for locusts. So this is why when two locusts come together, this is how they're able to reproduce. But when there's a lot of them together in the same place, it happens faster and they also begin to transform. They go through a metamorphosis. They get bigger, they change colors, they go from green to a brown and yellow, at least the ones in, in this part of the world, in the Bible times, and they learn how to fly not just like those little hops that they do, but like actually fly through the air like a bird would. This is what's called a gregarious locust. That's the technical term for it. And they, as of course they multiply, more of them multiply and then more of them multiply and then they get really big and then they eat up all of the grass. So they're able to pick up and fly to the next location. And when they finally reach a place or a time where there is enough grass and vegetation for them to spread out, they stop multiplying as much. That's how swarms of locusts work. So this is how God has created those critters to stay alive. And we also can recognize how this would be a, a serious plague, not only in Bible times, but in America during the Dust Bowl and things like that. But this ensures, this little thing that God put into these creatures, ensures that in times of hardship, not only do they survive, but this is when they thrive When things are hard, when things are difficult and it doesn't seem like there's enough, that is when these creatures come alive, you might say. And I'll use it as this illustration. We never know what we're capable of until we reach the breaking point. Until we are exiled, you might say. Until we are placed without Creature comforts, until we're placed without the people that we depend on. That's when you find out what you're really made of. And I will tell you that we, living in an exile now, like Daniel and his friends lived in exile, we can not only survive these times, but we can thrive during these times. Because when you're walking with the Lord and the chips are down, God begins to call things forth out of you that were always in there, but were never needed before, A grasshopper, locust, can go its entire life cycle without turning into a gregarious, swarming locust. Because it's not needed. But it's always in there if it's necessary. And in the same way, God puts things in his people that if you live during a time of peace and prosperity where the gospel is allowed to flourish and thrive, you might not need it. But when times get hard and times get difficult, those things begin to be awakened within you. We would call them spiritual gifts, of course. And this is exactly what we're going to see That Daniel and his friends are going to rise to the top of the heap in Babylon, even in this dark place, this thematically and symbolically dark place. You call somewhere Babylon, it's not a compliment, is it? But they're not only going to survive, they're going to thrive because of their obedience to the Lord. And I'll say the same way, during our sojourning, this life, it is a sold out, selfless commitment that will enable you to thrive it is no good to claim all of God's promises and blessings if you have no intention of remaining separated under the Lord in the midst of a crooked generation. You can't just show up to church for your blessing so that you can go out and do the same stuff you've been doing every week. You can't curse and blaspheme and swear and steal and lie and then come to church and say, Bless me, Lord! I'm claiming His promises. Yeah, well, you've got to claim the commandments too. And we agreed in our discussion last week. We're living in dark days. We're living in days of spiritual famine. Even if you say, well, I don't know if I see it as a spiritual problem, you get what I'm saying. These are dark days, and God is ready to call something forth out of this next generation of believers. There's going to be things that are going to be done and said, works that are going to be accomplished, things that are going to be written and spoken, and ministries that are going to be activated that never would have been activated before because of the days in which we live. Are you ready for that? Do you want to be part of that generation? that the Lord stirs up and calls out, if you want to be, if you want to thrive in exile, you've got to follow the example of Daniel. This is a real familiar passage, but we're going to just start by looking at verse 8, because this is the key to everything we're going to talk about, not just this morning, but the entire rest of the book of Daniel. But Daniel, great contrastive conjunction there, the word but, coming out of all this negative stuff in the first seven verses. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. All right, where are we in this story? Last time we saw that Nebuchadnezzar, who was the general of the armies of Babylon and also the son of the king, was out on a campaign against Egypt when Nebopalassar, who was his father and the emperor of Babylon, was killed. Or actually, he died. I don't believe he was assassinated, but he died. During that campaign, Nebuchadnezzar wins a battle against Egypt at Carchemish. And then he goes through all of the vassal states of Egypt and begins to subjugate them to the empire of Babylon, including Judah. Jehoiakim is the king at this point, And Nebuchadnezzar not only took vessels out of the temple, he took hostages from Jerusalem. So that he could train them up to be courtiers in his own empire. And we discussed this last time. This is the first wave of exiles. Jerusalem has not been destroyed, but the exile has begun. Now we saw last time, they were not mistreated in exile. They were not dragged along in chains and thrown into the dungeon and then called out. No, they were, they traveled in style. They traveled like princes, which is what they were. They're members of the royal family because they, they were not just to function as hostages, but they were to be trained up in the ways of Babylon so that they would be supportive of Babylon so that when the day came and there was time to put a new king on the throne, Nebuchadnezzar would have people that were of the royal bloodline, but were entirely loyal and trained by him. So when they arrive in Babylon, they're eating from the king's table. Now, this is important to note. And if again, a lot of these things, if you're familiar, as I said, with uh, any kind of medieval stories or if you like fantasy novels, a lot of this probably really sounds familiar to you. But like the king's delicacies is something that was done. The food was brought out. And and the king, of course, had the best spread of them all. And he would send portions of his table to people that he wanted to favor. So if you had somebody come in from out of town or if he was trying to get this guy to go to war with him, he'll send him some extra portions from the king's own table because it was a mark of honor. Now, this is what's happening for Daniel and his friends. He's trying to say, look, we don't have to be enemies. I'm here to honor you. I'm here to bless you. But it really, as you all know, was not so much an act of kindness as it was an act of subjugation. You will live and thrive if you bow the knee and serve me. Kind of like how Satan told Jesus in the wilderness. He said, "If you, all these kingdoms I'll give to you if you will bow down and worship me. They were renamed by the king of Babylon. A very significant thing. I could kind of just talk about that for today, but I won't. Their names were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and and Azariah, and their names were changed to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Names that all had the name of the Lord in there, Daniel, Hananiah, like Yahweh, Mishael, Azariah. These are all names honoring the Lord, and they're changed to names that kind of sound similar. We're very uncertain about what these actual names meant specifically, but they seem to be honoring The names of his gods, at the very least, Daniel's name, Bel-Teshazzar. Bel is like Baal, the god that they worshipped. He renames them, and he's trying to make them forget the Lord and his law. Now, why does Daniel decide he's not going to defile himself? This is important to know. The food was, first of all, undoubtedly unclean. We went through the book of Leviticus not very long ago on Wednesday nights. We know what unclean food was. They were only supposed to eat animals that chewed the cud and parted the hoof. Only fish that had scales and fins and only insects that had jointed legs above the the thorax and lots of different rules that were done. It probably wasn't drained of the blood properly. It maybe had been strangled. And above all, it had probably been sacrificed to idols. This is the routine of the day. You'd make the sacrifice and you'd bring it to the king and he would eat it. If you've ever read Homer or any Greek literature, you see this all the time where they're going to have a party, so they'll make 100 sacrifices, and then they'll pass out the meat, and they'll all eat it. So this is why it's unclean food. This is also likely why, in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans chapter 14, when Paul is describing these Christians that were only eating vegetables and refusing to drink wine, and only eating food that had not been sacrificed to idols, probably because they were living in Rome or Corinth or wherever, and were trying to imitate Daniel and his companions here. They're saying, well, just like Daniel wouldn't drink the wine, wouldn't eat the food, we're going to do the same thing. And Paul makes the point that in Christ Jesus, you have liberty, and the idol doesn't mean anything anyway. Just be respectful to one another. But Daniel determined not to defile himself. The world, with a capital W. There's two definitions of the world in the Bible. The first is from John 3.16. God so loved the world. The world. God loved the world. It, as when you use it like that, you're describing all of the people that exist on this little blue marble that God created. The world. But then there's a place in 1 John where John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And that is the sense I mean right now when I say the world with a capital W, described as the system as it stands without God. Any system. Not The American versus the Chinese versus the communist versus the Hindu. No, no, no. All of it in rebellion to the Lord under sin. The world with a capital W. Whether from malice, because they hate us and they hate God, that's existed. Or out of misguided kindness, which is what we see here. The world is constantly trying to rename and retrain the church. Rename and retrain God's people. Let me give you one example of each, of renaming people. This is people trying to tell you what the church really is. You see an awful lot of that right now, where people that will go on TV or podcasts or write books that will explain what religion is for. A lot of this goes back to the, uh, the, the existentialists and psychologists from the, the turn of the 20th century, and they, they say, we've done all the history, we know what religion is for, So they come up with a definition of what religion is, and then they come to the church and say, therefore, this is what it is. And the most common use of this is that religion is the cultural glue of a society. Now, does religion and Christianity function that way? Yes, but that is not what God's church is. God did not send us out and say, go be cultural glue. Give the people a common story. Even if they don't believe it, it doesn't matter. As long as they've got something that holds them together, and they believe in something bigger than themselves. That is not how God defined his church. He said, I've sent you out as sheep among wolves. Go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do things with a heavenly perspective. You wrestle not against flesh and blood. But the world is constantly doing this. And there are many people in the church, for some reason, they keep on bringing these people in to talk about it. They tell us what we are. God has already told us who we are as a church. God has already told you who you are as a Christian. They're also trying to retrain us. And who's they again? The world as a capital W system against and without God. These are people that are constantly coming to try, trying to come in and tell us we need to reevaluate our theology. It's no good anymore. We can't believe this anymore. People will say things like, I actually Rhett saw this online yesterday. Uh, I forget the context. But somebody said, Christians just need to realize we can't believe this anymore. And I forget what the specific matter was, but I remember thinking, why can't we believe that anymore? Because most people don't? That's no good reason to stop believing something. It's not like we've had some brand new wave of evidence and some brand new revelation from God that tells us these things are different. They just say, well, nobody thinks that anymore. To which we say, well, that's not really my concern. I'm not really worried about that. I'm not really worried about what most people think. As Ken Ham likes to say, most people didn't survive the flood. So... Most people is not a concern of mine. You know, you go to school and your teacher will tell you, oh, don't you know where that doctrine came from? Don't you know that it, that it came from this and it was oppressive and I was all this and trying to re-change it? And it's always easy to justify giving in to the world because what we say is, well, listen, right now we need to make a temporary alliance with these people to stop this coming up. But then what happens is you find yourself way downstream. How did we get here? Right, we're going to stop fighting against this so that we can fight against this thing over here. And now all of a sudden you've absorbed the thing that you were fighting against beforehand. Daniel is our example here. He resolved, the word in Hebrew is he set his heart. He set his heart not to defile himself. Defying the consequences. Like, I could get killed for this. He had to know, right? he had just come back from watching his city get conquered and he's been carried away. He's been very blessed and that he's going to be taken care of. And he's going to miss the siege. There's some typology of the rapture there, in my opinion, that the righteous are being taken away before the judgment comes. And he, and he could have said, hey, I'm not going to push my luck. If God has delivered me from this, then I'm not going to you know, deny a gift from God. He said, no, I know what God has already said, and I don't care what happens. He refuses to participate, and he chooses the Lord. Colossians 2, verse 8, Paul would write, See to it that no one takes you captive. How are we going to be taken captive? By philosophy and empty deceit. I like that because philosophy is very profound and very smart. Empty deceit means you're just getting tricked. (laughs) There's a range of things there. Some people say, well, I've been reading all of these books and I really, I don't know if I believe in Jesus anymore. Some people, they hang out with their friends and they go, Oh, that's so lame. And they go, yeah, you're right. He says, it doesn't matter what, whatever pushes you to the edge, whether it's like somebody's dissertation or a meme you saw on Facebook. Don't let anybody take you captive. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ, tradition can take you captive too. So much of the culture can be theologized and then imported into the church and taught as doctrine." Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for this. In Mark 7, verse 9, he says, you are teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You've nullified the scripture by your traditions. And that happens, man. It's happened throughout American history. In the early days of our republic, enlightenment doctrine from Hobbes and Locke and guys like that was being theologized through the scriptures and then preached in the churches. And it set up a lot of people to say, do we even really need God? It was this deistic attitude that got into the churches. Not all of them, but it sure did. To the point where people were like, well, you know what, as, as long as religion is helping the, the, the poor and the underclass and the ignorant of society do the right thing, then I guess that's okay. But the smart of us know that, you know, we're really just here because it's what you do. Look at the progressive era, you know, the, the age of of progress when the Industrial Revolution was taken hold. And this belief that, you know, Darwinism was really hot at this point. All these technologies were advancing at the age of steam and iron. And they just, you read the books from this time, humanity will continue to advance. will never stop advancing. And in a hundred years, we're going to have People that know how to fly and use their psychic powers and stuff. And like, there were some really weird people at this time. But it was this constant belief in progress was brought into the church. And you got something called the social gospel, which who cares about our theology as long as we're helping people? And you got organizations that began to do a lot of really good things, do a lot of good charitable works. But they abandoned their doctrine because they said, well, wh- why are we dividing over doctrine? Really, all that matters is feeding the hungry. It was theologized and brought into the church. We saw maybe at the end of the last century, a bunch of business strategies and self-help techniques were theologized and brought into the church. And you hear somebody who's preaching, and it all sounds good, but you realize after a while, it's like, I'm pretty sure I read this book for, in my business class. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I heard this idea from a self-help seminar. Why is my pastor preaching it from the pulpit? You saw that happen. And today, it's activism, right? Everybody's an activist. Everybody stands on something. Do you really think that all these people that are waving the gay flag outside their church got there because they arrived at a new understanding of Scripture through prayer and fasting and the work of the Holy Spirit? We just happened to discover that women don't have to submit to their husbands and can be pastors during the most feminist age humanity ever had? Just happened to happen that way? We, we take the culture, we theologize it, and we preach it from the pulpit. I mean, the same thing can happen from the other direction. Where really it's much more important to be a good American than it is to be a good Christian. And if you're not an American, no, you're not a Christian. You're, you can be saved, but really you ought to be more like us. It happens across the board. We've got to stop that. Christians used to be called Jesus freaks. I love that. Jesus freak. Because it's so insulting. <laughs> It was not a nice thing to be called a Jesus freak back in the day. I find it very interesting that in the last revival, the people that were the most open to the work of the Holy Spirit were hippies. You know why I think it was them? Because they had already cast off their culture. They said, I don't want anything to do with any of this. I'm going to go and seek the truth. And God goes, oh boy, I can work with that. People that say, I'm not going to follow what everybody else is doing. I'm just going to go and seek God. He says, you'll find me. Watch out. How many times in the Bible does it say, seek and you will find? Or at the the early 1900s in Azusa Street, it was the poor African American communities out in California that were pushed to the side and ignored and the Holy Spirit swept through. Why? Because there's already a disconnection with the culture. So there's a celebration of the the distinctness of the church. The Salvation Army was that way. The coal miners that got saved under Whitfield and Wesley were that way. We've got to reclaim this nonconformist attitude in the church. We're not like them. We resolve not to defile ourselves. And we're going to get to the details in a minute. But for right now, all we need to know is that we have to decide now. We're not going to defile ourselves. We're not going to let the world get under our skin and change us. It's all Jesus and nothing else. And I realize that this is radical. You know, this is how I was taught. I had a, a, first of all, a great-grandfather who, I'll tell you his testimony sometime. But when he got saved, he was one of those... Well, if it's true, then what are we doing? (laughs) If this is real, then let's just go. And he taught my dad the same way, who taught me the same way. And so that's how I grew up. But as I have realized, that's not common. The idea of just Jesus, people don't want to hear that from the pulpit. Well, you're going to hear it here. I don't have anything else to give you. I'm not that great. And I don't know anybody else that's so great that I would stand up and teach it to people and say, live your life this way. Jesus. Decide now. The details will come later. A lot of this is going to be unique to your situation, like Daniel's was. But you've got to decide, Jesus freak. Well, I like Jesus. I don't like that freak part. Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. And I'm spending way longer on this one point than I intended to, but you remember when Michael, David's wife, rebuked him for dancing before the Lord? They were bringing the Ark of the Covenant in. He says he was wearing a linen ephod. Now, this is not, as some have put out there, that David was uh, dressed so much immodestly as much as he's the king. Kings don't wear linen ephods and leap and dance before the Lord. He shows up, and the, the queen says to him, Oh, but all the ladies in Jerusalem enjoyed that, David. What kind of, you think, you, you, if you're going to be king, you've got to be king. You're not just some guy in the wilderness. You're not Robin Hood anymore, David. You've got you to be noble and regal. And he says, You haven't even seen undignified yet, lady. He said, I'll become even more undignified than this. Because David's like, it's Jesus. He didn't know Jesus' name yet, but he knew his father. It's all Jesus. Well, fools for Christ, Paul said. Just, you know, don't worry about the details yet. Just decide that's who I'm going to be. That's who I'm going to be. If you don't like the way, you don't like your parents' religion, don't do your parents' religion. You follow Jesus, and he'll lead you to the truth. Verse 9. So Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. We've made our distinction. We're not doing this. Very powerful when somebody says no to something like that, isn't it? Because it makes everybody else kind of sit up and go, well, I I don't want to do that either. That's exactly what's going to happen. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king. Who assigned your food and your drink? For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Maybe we should get in the habit of using their Hebrew names. They probably would appreciate it, huh? Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables." So, here Daniel's made this determination. We saw at the end of verse 8, he asked the chief of the eunuchs, and then we know from the previous verses, this man's name was Ashpenaz. The chief of the eunuchs, remember the term eunuch was uh, the the official title. And eunuch, of course, can also mean a man who has been castrated. They used to do this for court officials so that they would leave the queen and the princesses alone. But over time, it becomes clear that there were eunuchs in the Bible and in history who had children. So, perhaps the title just became... Uh, You know, you were called a eunuch, but it really didn't mean what it used to mean. But remember, it is entirely possible that Daniel and his three friends had been castrated in this process. And as well as this man, perhaps. But we cannot be certain. But he goes to him, and look at this. Ashpenaz shows favor and compassion. One of those words is the word chesed. In the Psalms, every time it says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his love endures forever. Or maybe mercy or steadfast love. The Bible translations have a hard time getting it across. Is that word chesed. And this is exactly what he's showing to Daniel. But he says, I'm not, I'm not going to let you do this. He's not angry. But he says, I can't let you do this. Because if you're the one eating you know, a vegan diet, and everybody else is eating all the good stuff, they're going to be healthy, and you're going to shrivel up, and I'm going to have to answer for that. Because I'm supposed to take care of you guys. And the king's going to have my head. So the next thing we see is Daniel addresses the steward. If you have an old King James Bible, it might have a capital M, Melzar there. The word Melzar means steward. So it's probably not a proper name there, although it could be. Uh, But this is the guy, not Ashpenaz, who was in charge of all of them, but the guy who was directly assigned to Daniel himself. And he says, here's a test. We will eat only, the translation is vegetables, but the word there is zeron. It's related to the word for seed. So, Daniel would not have just been eating like carrots and cabbages and uh, everything you've seen in every children's ministry thing you had to color in, right? Anything that that came from seeds, so fruits and vegetables, also bread, would have been able to be eaten by Daniel. So, it wasn't quite as bad as it sounds. Can I just say, real briefly, this is not diet advice from your Bible? (laughs) I've, I've heard that preached before. Like, this is why we shouldn't be eating meat. It's like God commanded them to eat meat at certain points. So, that's not what it is. And this is a miracle. Because everybody else is not, they're not eating bad food. They're eating what everybody else was eating, the best in the land. And they're eating this, so you really ought to see this as a miracle. Although, you know, junk food's not good for you, so don't eat it. it says, let's just try it for 10 days. 10 days, this is a three-year process, remember? So 10 days is negligible. So let's just try it for 10 days. Can you do 10 days? You know, I know Ashpanaj doesn't want to do it, but can you just try just give us vegetables for 10 days, and we'll see how it goes. And at the end, it says Daniel and his friends looked better and were fatter. Now, don't think fat like we use the word fat. This is an old version, an old use of this word, which means they looked healthy. They didn't look all, all skinny and bony. They looked healthy, which might have been a miracle in and of itself that they were only eating uh, vegetables, and they looked that way. That's like probably how we're supposed to read it. So we've agreed that we're not going to defile ourselves. Daniel shows us how to go about that process here. And y'all, this part is so important because so many people want to do it a different way and it becomes way more difficult. First thing you need to notice, not every sinner is a quote-unquote bad person. Ashpenaz was a pagan, but he's showing kindness and love to Daniel. So is this steward. Sometimes, people trying to get you to conform to the pattern of this world are doing so out of love because they legitimately think that this would be better for you. Not everybody, but this isn't what we see in this passage. Because they say, listen, this isn't going to work for you. I'll get to a story about that in a minute in my own life, but... We remember, of course, that these people are blind, that we're the light in the darkness. Jesus told us in Matthew 5:14, you're the light of the world. But here's the thing: a lot of people will be deceived because we read things in scripture that say, uh, for example, homosexuality is wrong. And you've got a, a cousin or a friend or a neighbor who's gay, and they're super nice. And they're friendly, and they're great with your kids, and you like hanging out with them and all that, and you just can't connect the two in your fact that this person is a sinner going to hell, yet they're super, super nice. Can I just tell you, not every sinner is like, <laughs> right? You know, like twisting the mustache and tying ladies to railroad tracks. Like, that's not what sinners are like, okay? There are lots of really nice, good people. But what do we learn from Romans? Nice and good is totally irrelevant when it comes to matters of salvation. We are saved by the grace of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And you need to be able to have enough wisdom and compassion to say, this person is great, I love them, but they're desperately wrong and they're going to hell apart from Jesus. So remember that. You, know, don't, you don't need to you know, try to paint out every person that is not a Christian to be you know, dastardly and maniacal, but you do have to remember that they're blind. right? They're, they're, you're alive and they're dead, as the Bible would say. Have a little love for them. Which leads us to the second thing. Daniel does not come in here, barge in, and rant and rave. If you think I'm eating that unclean stuff, you got another thing coming, Nebuchadnezzar. How do you think that would go for Daniel? That's fine. You don't have to eat it. I'll chop your head off and throw it to the dogs. Then I won't have to worry about you anymore. Look at this. Daniel is winsome. He goes to the proper authority channels, and he's creative in his approach. When he's told no, he says, how about this? You know, there's going to be a point later where Daniel, with the lion's den, is just going to have to totally openly defy the law because there was no way to get around it. But Daniel is going out of his way to say, I'm not trying to cause trouble, but I have to obey God. Is it all right if I just have vegetables? No, I can't do that for you. You're going to look, look, well, look, if you're worried about me being healthy, can we just try it? Can we try it for 10 days and, and see if I actually do look more or less healthy? He's creative. He's winsome. When we are trying to stand against the current, we do it out of love, never out of fate. So many people like to revel in their distinctness as a Christian because they despise other people in their country or in the world. And they're not doing it out of love for Christ, but out of opposition to these people. That is the wrong way to do it, you guys. Those are the people you're here to help, that you're here to save. All these people that I hear, you know, Christians, these, these terrible people and these demon-inspired folks. And God, put a stop to them, Lord. Yeah, put a stop to them, Lord. But do like a solitarsis thing. Put a stop to them by making them all apostles. How do you like that? We recognize the peril that people are in. We're, at, we're out to save them. We're not worried about us. I'm not worried. About why, why can't I have some of the food? You need, he could have gone in and demanded that they only give him kosher food. But he said, you know what? That would probably be harder. For you, so I'll just eat vegetables. He's willing to defer his own rights in order to help this other person out. And number three, so we're noticing that these people are people and sometimes they're doing it out of love, even though they're wrong, which leads us to number two do this out of kindness and out of love. And number three, Daniel was willing to put God on the spot. Don't you like that? He says, Well, we'll do it for 10 days and we'll see how it goes. He probably walks away from that meeting and goes, I guess we better pray. We're only going to eat, you know, bread and cabbage and water for the next 10 days. And everybody else is going to be getting steaks and pork chops and wine. And, well, let's just go pray. And God met him in that moment. Don't get so caught up in the logic and the for sure of a situation as if God was not a factor in it. So often we do that. We look at the life that we're in. We look at the situation presented to us. There's no way out. You got God on your team. Ah, it's a cop out. No, it's not. It's not a cop-out. It's the truth. Oh, they'll fire me if I don't do this. Well, maybe, but God's on your team. So if you really want to keep that job, then pray and ask the Lord to give you an out. But you better be willing to take a stand. You You don't say, God, make a way out. If not, I'll sin to keep this job. No, that's not good. You say, God, I'm going to obey you. I'm asking for your help. Trust him. I love that in 1 Kings 17, we don't see that the Lord came to Elijah and said, tell him it's not going to rain. Elijah just showed up and said, it shall not be dew nor rain except at my word from now on. Now, maybe the Lord spoke to him, but it says that he did that and then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. So it could entirely be that Elijah just put God on the spot. He says, this is, God has promised that the land is not going to be thriving when we're worshiping idols and the Lord answers our prayers, so I'm going to step out. And try it. I'm going to put God on the spot. Don't be afraid to step out in faith and trust the Lord. This isn't the same thing as testing God, right? The God, if you, if you come through with this, then I'll serve you. If not, then I won't. You say, God, I'm going to serve you no matter what. But this is a very difficult situation. I'm asking for your help. This seems like it would work, so I'm just going to step out and let God work. And this whole theme is going to run through the book of Daniel, that God is faithful, even if he permits us to perish Remember what the the three boys are going to say later? Our God is able to deliver us, O king, from the fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. That's the kind of attitude that God loves to reward and honor. When you stand separate from the world, it takes courage, but it's got to take love. Because remember, your separation is not just so that you can be part of a unique subculture, but it's so that you can be a testimony that draws the attention of those who oppose the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Christian who limits his entertainment options. Uh, I'm not going to see that one. What? Why not? Yeah, you know, I'm trying to be faithful to my wife. And I know if I see that, it's going to be hot, it's going to be sexy, and it's going to make me lustful. So I'm not going to go. Okay, well, I'll catch you later. Yeah, I'll catch you later, fellas. Somebody's sitting there and he goes, what? I, I don't know if I ever have done that in my life. Chosen to deny something out of faithfulness to my wife. Or refusing to be corrupt. Hey, I need you to, you know, we only sold 10,000, but I need you to write down we sold 12. He said, I won't do it. You need to do it. Come on, we all do this. Everybody does this every time. I'll, listen, I'll do anything you want. I'll work overtime. I'll come in on weekends. I'll try to make up the difference, but I'm not going to falsify the reports. They'll rant and rave, and they'll scream and slam the door in your face, but then they get home and they go, ah, that guy. (laughs) You're going to be stuck in their brain. Why? Because they've convinced themselves this is the only way to do it. But then you show them, no, there's another way. And they know, man, I I, I can't have this guy around here, but I need him around because, hey, that's one guy who's not going to lie, and I need him. Maybe you going out, you say, oh, we're going to go out with the friends. We're going to have a good time. But you're like, you know what? I've had enough. I'm not going to drink anymore. Oh, I'm reporting. Yeah, but then if I drink another one, I'm going to get drunk and the Lord told me not to do that. Come on, you're so- no, I'm not doing that. I'm having fun. I'll hear with you guys but I'm not going, to, not going to cross that boundary. Somebody's going to be going home and like, you know what? I wish I had the guts to do something like that. Women, you decide, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to use my body in order to get attention for myself. I'm not going to flaunt myself. I'm not going to dress and post things online in such a way that I'm getting people to look at me a serious problem that's on the rise right now. Have you noticed that? It's got to stop. I don't work Sundays, boss. I need you on Sunday. I'm not working on Sunday. Well, I'm going to fire you then. Don't fire me. D- you know, at that point, that's not when you throw it back. You say, look, man, I, I, I know that you need help. I know you need this, but I can't do Sundays. Can I do Sunday afternoons? I'll come after church. I can't do Sunday mornings. I've committed myself to the Lord. That stands out to people. They see that. They noticed that. Can you believe what she did? You know what? If we're going to have this conversation, ladies, I'm going to leave. Well, what's the big deal? I I would not talk about you this way. I'm not going to talk about somebody else. I'm refusing to defile myself. When you go to class and your professor demands that you write some paper denouncing the faith or contradicting the Lord or something along those lines, that happens all the time, especially for, for freshmen in college. You get these papers that you have to write that denounces God or deconstructs the faith or affirms something that we know not to be true. You say, could I instead write an opposing position paper? Or can I write this paper and then include an appendix where I give my own views? No, no, I know it's 10 pages. I'll write 12 in order to put my own views out there. I'm not going to let you do that. I'm really please asking you to do that. And so then what you do, you put a footnote at the beginning and say, well, these are not my views. I recognize these are the views of my professor. I'm going to write them down. (laughs) That's not not defiant. That's saying I'm doing what you're asking, but I'm making very clear. I am not defiling myself. Do these things. When your job has got some HR initiative, or they want you to take a stand for some social cause that you can't get behind. You say, boss, I love you, but I'm not doing this. I can't do it. I'll do something else. If you want me to raise money, I'll raise it for any number of things, but I won't raise it for that. I'm not going to go back and write a statement, uh, you know, talking about how uh, Christianity and my, all these things have given me this privilege that I need to deconstruct because I believe that some of these things are related to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the most important thing in the world, and I'm not going to write a thing against it. Boss probably won't care anyway. <laughs> oh, whatever. If I'm going to lose people over this, it's not worth it. You know, Romans used to admire Christians in the way that they died in the arena. I couldn't find the quote, but I remember there was some Roman general or um, general or emperor who said, I wish my soldiers had as much bravery in the face of death as these Christians when they're being killed in the arena. I remember when we went down to Costa Rica. This is a little different, but it's a similar kind of idea. We're talking about glorifying God through your difference with a winsome attitude. We're going down to Costa Rica with a bunch of teenagers and we're on the plane and everybody's like, hey, so where are you going? Go to Costa Rica. Which resort are you staying at? And we're not boasting. We're, well, we're not going to a resort, actually. We're going to be staying at this hotel and we're going to be going to the, you know, this homeless community and we're going to be going to these kids. And wow, wow, I feel bad. And I remember saying, oh, no, no, don't feel bad. Just, that's just what we're doing. There was a woman that stayed at the same hotel as us, and she was going out every day. She was going windsurfing, and she was going into the jungles and ziplining everything, and she'd come back, and she didn't want to talk about that. She just wanted to hear about what we did. Where did you go today? Well, we went to this refugee community at the border of Nicaragua, and we were handing out clothes and handing out food. And, wow, that's amazing. You know, she wouldn't do anything wrong. It's not always that case, but that distinction and that difference, like that, this is a whole different priority. I came down here to do things for myself. They come down here, giving up time that could have been given to themselves for other people. Your job is to do what is right and trust that God knows what he is doing in commanding you what is right, even if it's your life or your death. Daniel was willing to be kind, but he was never going to compromise. And so God met him there with a blessing, which we'll see in verse 17 now. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel... Seeming not the other three, Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times, literally their ten hands, better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So during this time of training, God endued them with wisdom, with spiritual gifts. They excelled. So verse 17 there covers that three-year period of training. And then they come before Nebuchadnezzar and they're tested. And they're ten times better than everybody else. And we're going to see the rest of this book. They rise to prominence to the point where Daniel and his friends are functionally running vast swaths of the Babylonian Empire. A little note there in verse 21, when it says Daniel was there until the year of King Cyrus, this is not saying that Daniel died in the year of King Cyrus. Chapter 10 is going to tell us he had a vision in the third year of Cyrus. What it's saying is Daniel lasted to the end of Babylon. And we know he also extended into Persia as well. That's what that's trying to say. He was there until the last year of Babylon and continued from there. God enabled these boys to thrive in their exile, to rise above captivity. And become wise rulers when i was working for 1-800-GOT-JUNK somebody told me during my training process you gotta lie to do this job you gotta lie you gotta lie about the price you gotta lie about what we can do so that way you get your sales and you just you got to and i said well i won't be lying you're not gonna be any good at this job well i'm not gonna lie You have to lie to be good at this job. I'm not going to lie. And I said, let's just see. I'm going to see how well I can do at this job by being honest. And the answer is that I did very well. And the branch did very well. And I I found out later that guy went to my boss and said, do you think Tyler might be a little too religious? (laughs) Because he won't do what he's got to do in order to get the sale and... You know, even even I got this talk from a lot of different people. It's like, you don't got to be so honest. You don't got to be so, in, have so much integrity. You don't got to be so, you know, holy about it. I'm like, yeah, I do. Yes, I do. Because I'm not working for you. I'm working for the Lord. As I believe that if every now and then I'm going to have to lose out on a sale for being honest, so be it. So be it. You could have got more out of that. Yeah, but now they might call again. This may shock you. You would have expected that God was going to raise up these four boys to bring Babylon down. That's not what he did, did he? Jeremiah the prophet had written in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, to the exiles in uh, Babylon, and this may, depending on the timeline, have been written after this, but the, the sentiment certainly applies. He said, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. He says, don't don't think you're coming home. Have kids, build houses, get a job. You're going to be there for a while. And as that empire prospers, so will you. Daniel and the others throughout the rest of this book are going to be working to improve and advance Babylon, to care for the king, to weep over the king, and no doubt to participate in the conquest and administration of other territories, much as Joseph did for Pharaoh. Do you remember that story in Genesis 47? During the famine, Joseph is receiving the payment of the people for their grain. And then when they run out of money to pay for it, he takes the land in payment and he consolidates authority under Pharaoh. He puts taxes in place. God used Joseph to bless Pharaoh. We must remember this. God did not send out his people to be revolutionaries, but to be the best citizens that their countries could ever have. To be people that love their nation, but know the truth. I know that the best thing for that nation is the truth. Not to try to bring it down, not to try to change its structure, none of that. To get the gospel out to as many individuals as possible so that this pagan worldly system will have people in it that know God. Consider Naaman from 2 Kings chapter 5. You know the story of Naaman. Naaman was the Syrian who had leprosy. He was the one that Elisha sent off to go dunk in the Jordan River. Seven times, and he was cleansed of his leprosy. Well, when Naaman came back and spoke to Elisha, it tells us in 2 Kings 5: 17 through19, "Please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord." So what is he saying is, I'm going to take a bunch of promised land dirt home with me, and I'm going to sacrifice on that when I come to sacrifice." But in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, Ramon was a false god, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. He says, listen, I'm a top dog general. Everybody knows me. Everybody loves me. The king loves me. And the king is an old man. And he... he, takes me by the arm, and I walk him into the house of his false god. And as he worships, I'm supposed to bow, I'm supposed to genuflect. He says, I'm only ever going to worship the Lord, but will God please excuse me in this matter? And Elisha didn't say, you take a stand and don't you dare. He said, go in peace. Idol's fake anyway. Very Pauline idea that Elisha gives him right there. God doesn't say, I don't want you to go off and die for no reason. I want you to be a godly testimony in the court of the Syrian king. You're not going to worship the false God, but if you've got to pay respects when you walk in, I see that. I know that. God is telling us the same thing. He says, you're going to have to live in this world that is going to grieve your spirit sometimes, but I need you there. We accept that God is sovereign over our land. We work for the prosperity of our land, which is why I cannot get past these Christians who believe that it is the church's job to tear down the structure. God had Daniel supporting Babylon. The early church propped up Rome for a very long time. Because Christians are in a country, it should be better off. Because Christians are in a company, it should be better off. Because Christians are in a community, it should be better off. Because a Christian is sitting at that dinner table, it should be better off. We have to maintain this separation from the world. But Paul uh, tells us not to go out of the world and never be around anybody. That's the mission. That's the job. Jesus hung around with some scummy people. But did Jesus compromise with them? Jesus wasn't going out to the prostitutes because he was hanging out in brothels. Jesus did not go out to the parties with these tax collectors and sinners and get loaded with them. He went out there and loved them And did like Daniel did, says, I will not defile myself, but I'm happy to be here and love on you. I'm not going to share in your sin, but I'll share in your uncleanness. God will enable Christians who do this to grow rich, to grow powerful, influential, admired, for his own glory's sake. Now, that's not a promise you can hang on your wall that if I serve Jesus, I'll get rich. That's so backwards. Come on. All right. But this is why God will allow certain believers to rise up so that he'll have a witness in the court of the king or a witness in the White House or the halls of justice or the halls of Congress, a witness in the boardrooms, a witness in the universities. That's another theme of Daniel, by the way, is that God intervenes in the affairs of nations, not just for judgment, but to support them and to love them. God doesn't just love Israel. They're his special chosen people, but God loves the United States God loves Mexico and Canada and China and Brazil and Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia and India and England and Germany and Belgium. He loves them all. But the best thing for these places is to have godly people that refuse to compromise, that are just one level detached from everybody else with the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word. They were only effective influences because they remained undefiled, amen? If you become just like everybody else, you're not influencing anybody. So we also are to seek the welfare of our exile, but we do so strictly according to God's laws. And you're going to see both yourself and those around you be lifted up. As we come to these last few minutes here, we've talked about the need to stay separate. The manner, right? The attitude in which we stay separate. The purpose for which we stay separate, which is to seek the welfare and the prosperity of the nation around you. We're going to see that as Daniel goes through this, because of the decisions he's made right here, and in fact, as we're already beginning to see, that greatness is being called forth out of Daniel in exile. And then likewise, we have to remain pure so that the Lord can call that same greatness out of you and me. This generation needs great men. 1 Peter 2, the apostle told us, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There are some separations that you're going to find easy to make. Oh, the, you know, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Easy peasy. Yeah, I, I, no problem. I can do that. Okay. Love your neighbor as yourself. Ooh, that's harder. I'm really good at the moral stuff, but it's like these these fleshly vices that just get me every time. It's different for everybody, but we have to make them. Christian culture is not just to be a subset of American culture. It's supposed to be something radically different that transcends culture. Different clothes and different movies and different catchphrases are not enough. I don't dunk on Christian culture, but that's not the goal. It's not our purpose. And if it collapses, oh well, we've still got the gospel. We should be able to take the way we are living as Christians, transplant it to any nation in the world without really changing anything. And, you know, I'm going to give you guys something now. I'm going to close with this. These are 12 characteristics that I've been working through in my own devotional time with the Lord. And I think we'll probably pick these back up another day, but I just want to read them to you now. We talk about standing against the the current and standing against the grain and you know, how are we to live? It's not just saying no to things. You've got to say yes to things. And as I consider this generation that is just so different, like we're stu- we haven't even got there yet. We're still in that you know, that pupa stage, that metamorphosis. I don't know what's going to come out on the other side. But what kind of people is God going to need? What is he going to try to call forth? I've got t- 12 characteristics, and I'm just going to read these to you. This is the kind of people God needs for these days. Number one, truth we must have a fiery insistence upon the word of God as written, accepting no other standard of truth and refusing to reinterpret obvious lessons. Amen. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Says it, I believe it. God created the world. I believe it because it says it. Do not be anxious. I'm not going to do it because he told me. Truth. Just that, you, no, you, I'm not talking about this. There's truth. It's the word of God. Number two is obedience. We must have a fanatical devotion to the commandments of scripture, especially the words of Jesus. Without question and without exception. Not just believing that it's true, but living it out. Having a horror of sin. I would never do that. Are you crazy? Spiritual discipline to maintain it. Obedience. Number three, related but different. Liberty. This generation needs people who must be free in all matters of conscience, refusing to emphasize traditions or preferences, but enjoying life to the fullest. The people that need the gospel now are people that have no loyalty and no love and no patience for things that are not eternal. So we cannot major on the minors. We're going to enjoy life to the fullest. We're going to participate in the culture, but we're going to do it In the name of Jesus Christ. Number four is perspective. We must have a heavenly perspective and refuse to let ourselves be dragged into the priorities and the passions of the passing moment. This next generation of Christians needs to be inoculated to politics and social trends. It does not move us. We're standing on the gospel because we know that we're going to heaven someday. And we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Number six is selflessness. We must choose to forget ourselves and instead choose to see the life of Christ manifested in our bodies through renunciation and submission. The next generation of Christians need to stop trying to self-actualize themselves. Who cares about me? It's Christ in me. Kill me. Persecute me. Insult me. Cancel me. I don't care. I'm following Jesus. Number seven is preparedness. We must prepare ourselves for the critical moments in our bodies, our minds, and our souls so that we never need pass by an opportunity. This means that we are not intellectually lazy, we're not physically lazy, or spiritually lazy because you never know when the battle is coming. And if you need to cast out a demon, you've already been praying and fasting and you're ready to go. Number eight, service. We must be totally committed to the church and its mission as active participants in the work of our congregations and communities. No more sideline stuff. No more just showing up Christmas and Easter and a couple Sundays and canceling it for rain, snow, or sunshine. We're serving. We are ourselves taking responsibility. Number nine, power. We need to cultivate a vibrant relationship with the Holy Spirit through persistent prayer, the pursuit of the spiritual gifts. Paul told us, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. That we might experience his supernatural power. People say, well, in the mission field, we need miracles because people don't believe in Jesus. We are living in that mission field right now. We need that. We've already seen it here. We need more of it. Number nine is accountability. We need to have effective accountability that is willing to include anyone who's willing to come but also knows how to exclude those who are not ready. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Come back when you're ready. One thing you lack, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Jesus knew how to make people come to the point of decision. We can't be so eager for butts in the seats that we skip over discipleship and conversion. Number 10 is forthrightness. We've got to have a forthright attitude as we talk about spiritual things, refusing to play games or conceal the truth. Yes is yes, no is no. So you're saying you believe Jesus is God? Yes. So you believe gay people are going to hell? Yes. You believe the Bible is true and you believe it literally? Yes. Forthright. Honesty. Kindness. This next generation needs to have steel in their backbones. Because you know why? Every other activist group does. So what? We're going to soft pedal it and think people want that? They won't. Number 11 is love. Love. We've got to look upon the world and one another with agape love, weeping over the lost, not ranting and raving against them and rejoicing in the truth like Jesus did. He said, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do you believe it or not? We've got to do it. And number 12 finally is loyalty. We must have an all-consuming love and loyalty to the person of Jesus Christ. No institution, no denomination to him alone. We are disciples first and foremost. We are those that got out of the boat to follow Jesus. Now, these are hardly the only virtues that we have to commit to, but I will say they are necessary, and in these days, they are rare. What would a congregation of people like that look like? What if God had a hundred of those? What if God had a thousand of those? What if God had five churches of a thousand people of those? People would know what to do with us. The wayward might come home for that. If you're saying come back to church, and by that you mean come, to, come back and listen to a few soft-serve life-help podcasts a week and sing some songs you don't really like, well, who wants to be part of that? But if you say, if you can handle it, come back and die with us. Oh, man, that'll catch someone's attention, because that's what it is, isn't it? This requires you to cast off the shackles of faction and passion and instead look to Christ. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. If you say, Jesus, pour out a revival and take things back to the way they were, my friend, it's not going to work that way. Revival shakes things up. Revival brings the house down. Now, do we go back? Yes, but we go all the way back to the word, to the the prayer, to the doctrines of the faith, the historic truths of of church. Our version of it, the way we grew up, I say this with all the, the pain in my heart, it's over. It's done. I loved it. I grew up with it. I wish I could do church the way my dad did. He's a pastor too. I wish I could do it. I can't. It's a totally different generation. It's a hostile one. It's an angry one. It's not indifferent. It hates us. And I told you there's this spiritual pincher movement that I can see coming. It's not just one side. It's coming the other way too. If you believe that these days are what we say they are, If you really meant all those amens you gave last week when I was talking about all the ways that we're going off, then this is how we've got to set our hearts today. What's going to happen is that we're going to see that there are things in us. There is strength in us. There is power in us and commitment and wisdom and spiritual ability in us that is lying dormant for generations. But because of the the hostility and the dryness of the time, the Holy Spirit is going to draw those things forth And we're going to be able to rise up and thrive during this season of our exile. So many people want to say, this must be the last generation on earth. Well, if it is, I want to go out with a bang, don't you? I want God to have to grab me by the collar at the rapture and say, no, you're done. Time to come home. I don't want to say, oh, oh, good. Yeah, I've been waiting for you. It's been, I don't don't know. It's been a while. So, oh, Jesus. Yeah, come on. You're here. Help me evangelize these folks. He's like, no, time to go. Time for the end to come. I want to come to heaven exhausted. I know I say this a lot, but I mean it. I want them, I want to be like falling across the finish line, not leaving anything out there. I want my armor to be banged up and dented and I don't know where my helmet went and my sword's broken in half, but I've got a train of people coming with me. When we start living like that, when we refuse to defile ourselves, and we do so with a winsome attitude of love that's not seeking our own benefit, but the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, people will sit up and pay attention. And we ourselves will thrive in exile, even if it means that we face the lions and we face the fiery furnace. It's going to happen. These are the people God's going to call forth. The only question is, are you going to be a critic? Are you going to be the audience? Or are you going to be one of the champions that God sends forth to save our people?